Thank you for choosing the podcast of Four Mile Creek Baptist Church in Moss Point, Mississippi. To discover more about Four Mile Creek or what it means to follow Jesus, you can visit us online at www.fourmilecreek.org. Here is this week's message. And it is indeed his breath in our lungs. It is uh, his breath that enables us and empowers us to do everything that we need and want to do. But also, it is the same breath that empowers us to speak of the gospel. You've probably heard it said before that you should preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. Though attribute it to a fellow named St. Francis of Assisi, He actually never said it, and uh, the quote in and of itself is just simply wrong. Uh, We're told in Romans 10 that you have to hear the gospel in order to respond to the gospel. In fact, Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord uh, will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. When we seek to bring people to Jesus, we have to tell them who he is. You just can't hope that you're living in such a way or acting in such a way that they look at you and they say, man, that person is, knows Jesus and so I just need to give my life to him. You must speak about Jesus. Now, by all means, uh, your walk needs to match your talk. Certain elements have to be present in a gospel presentation. What good is it to speak about Jesus if you never mention uh, why people need saving, right? If they don't know they need saving, they're not going to recognize their need for a Savior. If they don't recognize that salvation is by grace through faith and they think they have to work for it, well, you've sold them a false bill of goods. You don't want to do that either. And so today's verses, and we're covering the entirety of chapter 3. Don't have a heart attack on me. Uh, it's only 26 verses and, and a few verses in chapter 4. What we see here is, number one, we've got to speak the message. Number two, what needs to be included in the proclamation of the gospel. And so we're going to be talking through that. And, you know, at the end of the day, what's the worst that can happen when you share the gospel with people? Are they going to ridicule you or reject you or kill you? What's the worst that's going to happen? If they reject you, it wasn't you they rejected. It was the God of the message. Uh, If they ostracize you, well, they rejected Jesus. You're, they'll, they'll reject you and me. That's not a problem. And if they kill you, in the words of Dr. Jeff Farmer, they just gave you a one-way ticket home. So what is it? What's the worst they can do? Not very much. It's God's message. You and I are the messengers, so we speak the message of Jesus, and we call others to taste and see that the Lord is good. We pick up today in our study of Acts, a church on mission, whatever it takes. Let me ask you, do you have a whatever-it-takes attitude to win this, uh, uh, this community and this county and this state, nation, and world to Jesus? You know, you can have 500 gospel conversations and not a single person respond in the affirmative. All 500 might reject, but that's okay. Have you been faithful in sharing the message? What are you doing with it? Uh, we pick up today in John, and John, wow, y'all didn't know we were there. We're in Acts. 
in Acts 3. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John uh, are going up to the temple. Uh, the events of Pentecost have unfolded. They're still in Jerusalem. The church is gathering together and a few chapters are going to scatter uh, when, when persecution is added to the mix. But if you'll read along with me uh, in these first 12 verses, this is what the Bible says. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for a time of prayer at three in the afternoon. And a man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful, and so that he could beg from those entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and I'm sorry, and when he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at the man and said, Look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. He raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. And so he jumped up, and he started to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw, saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. And so they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to them. And while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what was called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he addressed the people, Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? Lord, we thank you for the message of your word. God, I thank you that uh, you are more powerful than the forces of this world. God, you are more powerful than our sin, that your grace is greater. God, I pray that as we hear your word preached today, God, that you would convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and remind us of the grace that you freely offer. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. The proclamation of the gospel is an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. When you preach the gospel to others, you are displaying God's power. That's what you're doing. It is an absolute marvelous thing that you and I are even able to proclaim the excellencies of God. It is an absolute marvelous thing that you and I, if we be in Christ, have, have the opportunity to come and be partakers of what he offers us. It is an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. This man was lame since birth. He was lame. Well, we don't know why he was lame other than the fact that when he was born, he was lame. He, he had a physical uh, impediment. And he is dependent upon the generosity of strangers. He's dependent upon the generosity of friends. If he has any family, uh, we don't know that he did or didn't. We just know that he was brought by friends every day to come and beg. That's what we know. And that's not really a life worth living, a life of, of begging. You know, we, we have a massive uh, homeless issue here in Moss Point and, and uh, Pascagoula. And I don't know if you've ever sat down with uh, those who, who live a life of homelessness and, and of begging. I have on a few occasions. And I remember sitting with one man on the, in the, on the streets of Cardiff, Wales, speaking to him just about his story. What happened? How did he end up on the streets? How, how did he end up uh, sitting on the sidewalk with a can out, not even looking up to people asking for money? 
And as he told the story, he got into it by a mess of his own making. He was relegated to that life uh, of begging. And he said something to me that stuck, that st stuck with me. He said, it's amazing that people walk by, they won't look at me, and it's like I'm not even human. He says, and I think that's the hardest part of all this. He says, I know I've messed up. I know I'm on the streets. I know that I'm here by my own doing. But my goodness, it's just nice to know that people still know I'm human. And I sat and I talked with him for about 30 or 40 minutes. That is no life to live, yet this is what this man is, is left to. He's left to a life of begging from passerbyers. He, he is left in a situation that is less than ideal. My goodness, it's one thing asking for help, but it's another thing when you have to beg for enough money just to get a little bit of bread in your stomach. And Peter and John recognized this, and they recognized it was an opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel. And so they're walking in, they see this man, and so he's asking for money. And Peter and John say, well, we ain't got nothing, but we got something better. And uh, we don't know if they were filling around and, and their, uh, I don't know what they would have carried. And I doubt they had pockets, but well, if they can make dresses with pockets today, maybe they did then too. I don't know. But, uh, but they're walking around, hey, we don't have silver or gold to give you, but what we do have, we're going to give to you and we're going to give generously. And so what do they do? He says, hey, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this is verse six, get up and walk. Get up and walk. They, they met a physical need in order to lead to a gospel conversation. That's what they did. They, they met a physical need in order to get to that gospel conversation. And no longer did this man have to beg. He was able to get up and walk. And by the way, there was an element of faith on his part in the fact that he even took the hand of Peter and John. There was an element of faith. He's been lame since birth. He's not walked. We've got some young children in here. You know what? Children just don't know how to walk. They have to be taught. And he, he gets up. And the text says that, that his feet and his ankles became strong. And he began to walk. I think part of the reason he's still holding on to John and Peter next is because he hasn't figured out the whole walking thing yet. I mean, he was able to figure out the leaping and jumping and everything else. But it's like, I don't know how to take this thing slow. But they took that opportunity. They met a physical need. It displayed God's power. And when others saw that, they said, well, my goodness, what in the world's happened here? It's often been quipped that if you want to see revival in a town, find the meanest person you can. Pray for that person's salvation. And when he or she gets saved, the rest of the town will have revival. It's an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. The man gets up, he's walking because he's been healed in the name of Jesus, and now he's walking and saving faith both spiritually and physically. He's walking. He's not done this before, and through meeting the need, there is an opportunity to share the message of the gospel. Listen, when you and I take an opportunity to speak the message of the gospel, there is an opportunity there to display God's power, His goodness, His grace. There is an opportunity to be a conduit by which He demonstrates His love, mercy, and grace to a lost and dying world. It may be you buy a meal for somebody. Now, let me tell you, there's two extremes to this. The first extreme is we're going to meet all the physical needs and we're never going to talk about Jesus. 
The other extreme is this. We don't care about physical needs. We're only ever going to talk about Jesus. Chris Schaefer was my personal uh, spiritual, he was my spiritual disciplines professor in seminary. And he said to us in, in the very early course of that semester, when we were talking about evangelism, he says, do not go and tell somebody about the bread of life when they've not eaten anything in seven days. Get them something to eat, and then as you sit there with them, tell them about Jesus. Evangelism is not all that scary. It isn't. I think we, 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 we put too much pressure on it. It's God who empowers the conversation. We've seen that already in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, those who were there and the Spirit of God came upon them, they were speaking in tongues, the text says, as the Spirit enabled them. You share Jesus as God enables you. And listen, there are so many evangelism techniques. I, I know, listen, I, I, I believe in evangelism because somebody took the time to tell me about Jesus. Right. Paul took the time to tell people about Jesus. The apostles took time. I believe in it. I believe in it. Here's the reality. There are so many evangelism techniques. I have a uh, uh, pocket-sized evangelism Bible uh, at my home. I like to carry that thing with me, especially when I'm traveling uh, and I've got a, a, a fly somewhere or whatnot. I like to take it because you never know. You might be sitting on a plane with somebody. You might have an opportunity to, to share Jesus. And if I'm going to tell them the Bible says something, I want a New Testament so I can tell them. And if you flip to the back of there, they've got all these answers to objections. They've got all these different evangelism techniques. And listen, all those things are good. They're helpful. But at the end of the day, let me ask you this. Do you know what the gospel is? If you know what the gospel is, then you're equipped to share the gospel. If you've been transformed by the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, you're equipped to share the gospel. By all means, use the techniques if you need to, but don't complicate it. Kiss. Keep it simple. Just keep it simple. And then when you're, in, when, when, when you're sharing, you don't have to go into a whole theological defense of everything. Just present the gospel. If you can talk somebody into believing, somebody can talk them out of it. When you proclaim the message, it's an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. It's an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. When you meet a need, you're displaying God's power. When you speak the gospel, you're displaying God's power. It is the power of the gospel that changes people. It's not education. It's not money. It, 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 it's not social programs. It's not anything. It's not politics. It's not anything of the light. It is only the gospel that changes the hearts and minds of men and women in order to totally transform who they are. Amen. Don't ever neglect that. I was thinking the other day, I was pulling into our house in Brookhaven, and I was, I was thinking about uh, political elections. And so many people on both sides of the aisle, they count so much. They, they, they put so much on these elections. And somebody might say, well, if my candidate don't win, oh, God help us, we're, we're, we're down the drain. And the other person on the other side of the aisle is saying the exact same thing. But you know what? Regardless of who's in Congress, regardless of who's in the Senate, regardless of who's in the governor's mansion or the White House, Holy God still sits on His throne. His power is still being displayed. God is still working today. Don't, don't, don't ever miss that. God's working. The gospel proclamation displays God's power. Find opportunities to display God's power. When you speak the message, you're displaying it. When you meet a need in order to speak it, you're displaying it. The message displays God's power. It's not the only thing it does. It also reveals man's sin. 
Listen to verse 13 and following. The Bible tells us this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your ancestors. Remember, he's speaking to the Israelites who were around, to the Jews who were around. He says, he says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus. Listen to this. Whom you crucified. The one that you crucified, God has glorified him. Whom you uh, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and you denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. When you speak of the gospel, you must have a conversation about sin. Do you know what sinners have a problem with? It's not the fact that they're sinners. They mind that you know they're a sinner. That's what they mind. They mind that somebody else knows they are living in a life of dysfunction. That's what they mind. But when you speak of the gospel, you must speak about sin. And sin is not abstract. Sin is never abstract. It is personal. There is no way around the conversation of sin. You have to talk about it. You and I, listen to me, you and I are real perpetrators of sin. We are real victims of sin. And by the way, that victim of sin is a real convoluted thing because we went and chose to sin. And now we're under its curse, but then others also sin against us. And so it's a convoluted thing, but we're real perpetrators of sin. We're real victims of sin. Here's the last thing. We're also real propagators of sin. Read Romans 1. We sit around apart from the Lord Jesus and we dream of ways to sin. And then we go out and we sin. That's why the psalmist says, keep your servant from both intentional and unintentional sin. It is possible to sin and not know it. It is possible to be caught up in the moment and you sin not thinking about it. And then you have to go and repent of it. We are perpetrators of sin. We are victims of sin. We are propagators of sin. Peter and John did not waste time in talking to them about their sin. So often, well, you know, if we, if we talk to them about their sin, they're just not going to want to hear from us. If you never talk about the bad news, the good news makes no sense. Oh, Jesus is my Savior. Why do I need a Savior? I'm, I'm the best thing since sliced bread. If you never talk about the problem, the solution makes no sense. And then in their sermon, they say to these people, listen, you handed him over, you denied him, and you killed him. I imagine they're sitting there thinking, well, Peter and John, I didn't drive the stakes. I was not Pilate who decided. I'm not the one who forced him to carry his cross. What do you mean I denied him? What do you mean I handed him over? What do you mean that, that I killed him? Peter and John, I just showed up and everybody was chanting, give us Barabbas. What do you mean I did it? The reality is, 
Not only did they do it, you and I did it. I was sitting in the Nissan dealership this week getting my car serviced. And I was working on this sermon. And I began to think about that reality. I did that. Craig Todd, Craig Todd personally handed Jesus over, denied Jesus, and killed him. I did that. You did that. Brother Craig, I'm not a believer. You did that, friend. You did that. Because of our sin, and sin is anything we think, say, or do that displeases God and breaks His rules. Because of our sin, and remember, sin is personal. You are personally responsible for your sin. Sin will either be pardoned in Christ or punished in hell, but it will never be overlooked. Jesus is the only pardon there is for sin. And by the way, if you didn't know this about a pardon, let me tell you this. Just because a governor or a president issues a pardon doesn't mean that the person whose name is on it has to take it. Because if you accept a pardon, it is an admission of guilt. It will be pardoned in Christ or punished in hell. There is no talking your way out of sin. Period. Because of that sin, it is you and it is me who drove the stakes. It is you and me who beat Jesus. It is you and me who spat on him. We took that crown of thorns and we picked it up and we put it on his head and we pushed it into his scalp and we twisted it. It is us who stripped him naked and looked upon that blood-stained, beaten body of our king. It was us who lifted the cross. It was us who put that sponge on a spear and dipped it in wine and lifted it up to him. It is us who pierced his side. It is us who on one day said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to then turn and say, crucify him and give us Barabbas. And you know what the funny thing is? It's not funny, but it is ironic as I was thinking about this. And I'm sure somebody else has noted this, but it was new to me this week. Barabbas was accused of attempting to lead an insurrection against Rome. And yet, we ourselves in our sin are a bunch of insurrectionists ourselves. We dethroned God from his rightful place when we chose to sin. One revolutionary for another. Friend, don't get it twisted. It was your sin. It was my sin that did that. And a conversation about the gospel involves a very real, real and clear conversation about sin. That is man's problem. And the only solution to man's problem is the blood of the spotless lamb.
A conversation about the gospel requires a conversation about sin. Understand this, sin is an affront to holy God. It is an affront. It is disgusting. We sin against God, we sin against others. We sin against ourselves at times. It is an affront. Have you ever considered of late your own depravity? The depths of wickedness in your heart? If you're not careful, it'll get the best of you. If you're not actively doing battle against the sin that remains in your life, then what are you doing? Sin crouches at the door, God says in Genesis 3, waiting to pounce. I've told the story before. I'll tell it again. Just this time with a new animal. We were loading up the car yesterday. We were coming here. And we've got a little gray cat, less than a year old. And he's in the driveway and he's playing with something. He killed him a snake. That cat just didn't walk up on the snake and say, oh, let's take care of business. I know he stalked that thing. He watched that thing. He pounced on that thing and he took its life. Sin is deadly. And if you aren't careful, it will pounce and it will attempt to take your life. It'll rob you of friendships. It'll rob you of God's blessing. It'll rob you of God's calling. It will rob you of so much. Sin is deadly. It is destructive. Listen to me, Christian. You may say, I know Jesus. I have been saved and forgiven of my sin. Praise be to God. But that old flesh that's been crucified with Christ, it's gasping for its last breath, and it's going to try to take you out with it. Don't get it twisted. There is no pet sin. There is no little sin that, oh, it's controllable. All sin starts small. And Satan will say, oh, it's no big deal. You'll sin in this one area, you'll sin in another. A conversation about the gospel requires a clear and concise conversation about man's sin problem. But here's the other thing. It also makes known the grace of God. It makes known God's grace. Listen to verse 16 and following. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and you know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance. Have, have you ever sinned in ignorance? Maybe as a kid you just didn't know any better. Maybe as an adult you just didn't know any better and you sinned out of ignorance. They didn't know better, but they still sinned. I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. Verse 18, and in this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that this Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, whom has been appointed for you as the Messiah. There is no other way to heaven other than Jesus. There is no other name given unto men by which we must be saved than that of Jesus. It, it, it's not through good works. It's not through these other religions that say we've got the way. It's only through Jesus. 
Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Verse 19. That the seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That he may send Jesus who has been appointed to you for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of restoration of all things which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you and everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have foretold of these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. So God raised up this servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from his evil ways. Don't give somebody the bad news and never tell them the good. Now they may get so mad at you that they don't want to hear the good news. They might be so upset that you know they're a sinner. If they don't want to hear it, there's nothing you can do. But don't get so caught up on the bad news, you forget to tell them about the good news. Don't, don't, don't forget that. What is the good news? The good news is this. You killed the source of life with your sin. But God offers forgiveness through faith in Christ. You killed him. You sinned, but God's willing to forgive. God's willing to restore you and make you whole, to bring you back into right relationship with God. That's what he's willing to do. He's willing to do that. You've heard the report. Respond rightly. Demonstrate faith. Receive the report of your sin. Receive the report of God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And then respond rightly. Don't just leave it. You've sinned. You need salvation. God offers it, so embrace it. You embrace God's grace by turning from sin and you turn to Jesus. So that the seasons of refreshing from the Lord, from the presence of the Lord, may come. When you embrace God's grace, you've been blessed. That's what he says, verse 26. God's grace... Uh, God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Peter says in, in 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19, that we have been redeemed from our empty way of life. We, we now live with purpose. We live with a purpose that is eternal. We live with a purpose that is sufficient. We live with a purpose that, 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 that infiltrates every area of our life and gives us meaning. That meaning that we were created with when Adam and Eve were created to worship God, to know him fully and to be known and loved by him through a faith relationship with Christ, we can have that again. It's not something distant. It's not something that's hard to be obtained. It's by grace through faith. Receiving a gift. And the reality is... Not only do you need grace for the moment that you were saved, you need grace for every day thereafter. It has often been said that the same grace that saved you is the same grace that sustains you. Have you sinned this week? Sinned this week? The same grace that was offered to you the day that you first believed is the same grace that's offered to you today. It is the grace... As Isaiah says, and I believe Isaiah 44, to wipe out your transgressions, to make them as mess. And God says to us, turn to me, for I have redeemed you. It's the same grace. 
The same grace that saved you is the same grace that will sustain you. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that will enable you and empower you for a life of obedience and faithfulness. Don't underestimate grace. I told our staff this morning in, in staff meeting and staff devotion, this is what I told them. We don't have reserves of grace. We don't. It, it, it's, it's not like those really fancy zero turns with two gas tanks on it. And you're out there in the yard and I'm, I, listen, I'm not a NASCAR driver, but I do own a zero turn. So take that for what it is. You can't just be going down the road and flip a switch and it go to the reserve tank. That's why the author of Hebrews says we may approach him to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. There are no reserves. Everything we need is found in Jesus. If there were a reserve, we'd be tempted to say, I don't really need him for this. I can just dip into my savings account and pull out what I need. There are no reserves. A conversation about the gospel displays God's power, reveals man's sins, makes known God's grace. Here's the other reality. It demands a response. It demands a response. In Acts 2, they heard the message. They were pierced to the hearts and they asked, what then, brothers, must we do? It demands a response. Here in Acts 4, beginning in verse 1, the Bible tells us, When they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple police and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and they took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. When you preach the gospel, the very nature of the proclamation demands a response. You have to answer the question. I was about to say ask, but answer. You have to answer the question that has been asked of you what are you going to do with Jesus? Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave all these answers. And then he turned the question on its head and he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the same man who would later deny Jesus three times, says, you are the Messiah, the promised one. And yet he would go on to deny and that's a whole other sermon in and of itself that we may get to. But the presentation of the gospel demands a response. Everyone has to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. Either he's Savior or he's not. He's Lord or he's not. He's true or he's not. He is life or he is not. He is the way or he is not. Brother Craig, I'm not going to make a decision. Then you've decided. To not make a decision is to decide no. This is only a binary choice. It is a yes, he is Lord, or no, he is not. There is no in-between. There is no middle way. In New Orleans at the 610 split, 
And, and you, you, you may have no idea what I'm talking about, but I grew up, and I'm the 610 split and I, we are familiar with one another. But the interstate splits. Three or four lanes go this way and takes you into the heart of New Orleans. Two lanes go left, and if you stick on that, you're going to get the Slittle, or Slidell as it's more commonly pronounced. But us southeast Louisiana people say Slittle. But if you don't know what's coming up, at that split, so many wrecks happen at the split. People don't know whether to go right or left, and so they end up getting in a wreck because they just say, well, I'll keep going straight. If Dr. Phil were there, he'd ask, well, how'd that work out for you? <laughs> There's no middle way. There is yes, there is no. Believer, you don't just need the gospel for the day of salvation. You need it every day. You need it day by day, moment by moment. To confess sin, to receive His forgiveness, to embrace His forgiveness. To walk in the power of God the Holy Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians. And you will surely not gratify the desires of the flesh. You need the power of the gospel to do that. It's not fire insurance. Don't get it twisted. I, I've been listening. I've been working on my house. I, I've been listening to a bunch of music. And this past week, I said, I want to listen to country music. I'm not talking prime country. I'm talking the newer country, which isn't, but whatever. And, uh, you know, I, I was listening to that. And it's one, one singer just trying to make it to church so I can get into heaven. I mean, it's a simple rebuttal, but... You know, we, uh, we had Chick-fil-A last night before we came here. Does that make us a chicken sandwich? Going to church doesn't make you a believer. Only a saving faith relationship with Jesus does. Out of that relationship, you get plugged into the life of a local church. So believer, believer, let me ask you. Are you trusting in the power of God's grace? Day by day, moment by moment. And if you're in here and you don't know Jesus, can I just tell you that if you haven't made a shipwreck of your life yet, the only reason you haven't is because of God's unseen restraining hand on your life. God has been holding back the mess you could get into if he were to take your hand off of your life. And we know from the book of Romans that if you persist in sin and disobedience, God will get fed up with that and he will take his hand off of your life and he will turn you over to depravity and to sin. By the way, Christian, even if you know Jesus and you continue in unrepentant sin, God will turn you over to the devil in order that you might be brought back to your senses. That's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, hey, these people have gone their own way. I've given them over to Satan so that they might come back. It demands a response. I've been reminded of this reality this week that, hey, Jesus, I need this every day, every moment. And can I tell you, you need it every day, every moment, Christian. And if you don't know Jesus, well, you, you, you need to come in the first place. And receive for yourself life, mercy, and forgiveness. You may think you have life. Peter says that your current way of life is empty. There's no purpose. There's no point. The only thing that you know how to do is sin. 
But God in his love, grace, and mercy is willing to work in your heart and mind to reveal to you your need for him and to bring you to a point of decision. And if you're in here today and you say, you know what, I don't know Jesus, but this is making a lot of sense. The Bible says that if you will confess him as Lord, if you will turn to him and away from sin, he will save you. As we've read earlier at the start of this sermon, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When Peter was called by Jesus to step out of the boat and walk onto water, and he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to sink, I love about that story that the text says he cried out, Lord, save me. And the text says that immediately Jesus reached out his hand. When you call upon the name of the Lord, he saves you immediately. There is no delay. And believer, if you, don't, if you do know Jesus, are you relying on his grace and mercy? What is your response today? Either you will choose to believe him anew and a fresh believer, or you will choose to reject him. Unbeliever, either you'll choose to believe him for the very first time, or you'll continue to follow the way of this world and Satan. As our praise team comes, will you stand and pray with me? Lord, we thank you that the gospel proclamation demands a response from each of us. God, and that you give us the grace we need to come to you and to trust you, both in that initial moment of salvation and in every moment thereafter. God, that you don't just leave us as we were. God, you change us. You make us whole. You make us yours. God, that you've demonstrated your power. You say in your word, God, that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. whom I am the foremost, so that in me, your extraordinary patience might be demonstrated as an example to those who are to believe in you for eternal life. God, I pray for those who are listening to this sermon who do not know you. God, I pray that your word will convict them so that they turn to you in faith and they say, Lord, save me. And God, that you would give them the assurance of their salvation. And Lord, for those of us in here, God, who we know you, we've trusted you, God, but as all do, we still struggle with sin. God, you say that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, God, that we would gladly, with joyful hearts, confess that sin to you who... who you are the forgiving God. You are the merciful God. Lord, that we would receive your grace and your mercy anew and afresh today. So that as David said in Psalm 51, we might teach the rebellious your ways and point them to you. Lord, we love you. And I'm sorry for how we fell. I'm sorry for how I fell. God, I thank you that you are greater than my sin. You are greater than my failures. Lord, that the same grace that saved me sustains me day in and day out. Lord, be with us during this time of invitation. We love you and we thank you. And all God's people said, amen. amen.